morning. How's everybody doing? My name is Chase Baker. I'm the family pastor here at Rolling Hills, and it's my privilege this morning to come and continue the series, God's Dwelling Place, the story before the story. The story before the main event, and, and what we say the main event is Jesus, and we're pointing to Jesus throughout this whole series, and we're taking a look at the tabernacle, the Old Testament tabernacle. What is it about the tabernacle? What was it so special about the tabernacle? Well, last week, Pastor Jeff kind of introduced the tabernacle by saying that, that the Hebrew word for tabernacle is literally dwelling place. It's place of residence. Um, and the tabernacle was the earthly dwelling place of God amongst the, his, his, his people, the Israelites, from the time they left Egypt, the mass exodus, I don't know if you remember that, to the time that they got to the promised land, which was years, they wandered in the, the desert and, and God established a, a dwelling place amongst the people that was called the tabernacle. And throughout scripture, we see that there's many dwelling places of God. And the first dwelling place was in the Garden of Eden. God created the world and he created the Garden of Eden. He created it to be a perfect place where he could dwell amongst his people. It would be a perfect relationship, but something happened, right? Sin entered the world, severed the relationship, broke the fellowship, broke the intimacy with God. And God had no other choice. He had to kick them out of the garden. Why? Because God is holy and man is sinful. He cannot be around sin. So he kicked them out of his dwelling place. They were no longer in, allowed into his dwelling place. And from that moment on, God wasn't done with his people, but he had to set up earthly locations for, the, for him to dwell. And so today, we're focusing on the tabernacle, another dwelling place of God, an earthly dwelling place of God. But it was never the dwelling place that God intended for his people, never the dwelling place that God wanted for his people. The tabernacle, in fact, pointed to a greater story. It pointed to a dwelling place that he wanted for his people, just like what they experienced in the Garden of Eden. Perfect. And so where are we in the story today? You can turn your copy of scriptures to Exodus chapter 25. We're going to focus on 10 through 22. And so where we are to this point, we go back years, the Israelites are enslaved. They're in slavery. The Egyptians um, are, are, got them as slaves. And so God uh, puts forth a plan to rescue the, the people out of the hands of Egypt, out of the hands of Pharaoh. And he, he asked a guy named Moses, he said, Moses, I want you to lead the charge. I want to rescue my people out, out of slavery, and I want you to lead the charge and go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. Let my people go. And he went several times, and God, God sent several plagues, right? And finally, Pharaoh let God's people go. And there was a mass exodus. That's where we get the book of the Bible. Exodus. There's a mass exodus out of Egypt. And what we see from that moment to where we are in chapter 25 is a lot of things that has happened. So they, they saw a lot of miracles happen. First, they saw the, the miracle of the Red Sea, the parting of the Red Sea. They walked through the Red, Red Sea on dry ground. And then they saw God providing manna from heaven and quail from heaven to provide sustenance for his people, to provide food for his people. And then water came from a rock. And another thing we see is that God etched Ten Commandments on two tablets. And he gave to his people as a way of living, living uh, the right way. And at this point in the story, he goes to Moses and says, Moses, I want you to build a tabernacle. I want you to build a place of worship where I can dwell. And I don't want you to just put it anywhere. I want you to put it in the center of my people. No matter where you go, that I want you to erect this tabernacle that will be the very focus 
of the nation. A focus of worshiping me and me alone. So that's kind of where we are. And, and so we first we need to understand one thing about the tabernacle. God didn't go to Moses and say, hey, I want you to build a tabernacle, but you can use whatever materials that you want to use. You can design it however you want to design it. God didn't do that. God gave specific instructions for how he wanted the tabernacle to be made. And, and we're going to get in some details of that. And I think it's really cool because it points to a greater story. Whenever Courtney and I um, got married, um, we moved into an apartment. And it was a tiny little apartment. Every time we turned around, we'd bump into each other. And we, we spent years saving money just to buy a house. And I think that's the goal for, for when you're newlywed and you're living in an apartment, you want to eventually buy a house, right? And so we saved up enough money where we can go and put a down payment on a house. We went house shopping. We finally found the perfect house that we wanted. And so it was moving day. We thought it'd take several hours for us to move. It took like 30 minutes for us to move all of our stuff from point A to point B. And we walked into our house, our new house at the time, and, and uh, when we noticed one thing about the house, it was empty. There were no furnishings in the house, and we couldn't afford to go out and just go buy any, any furniture that we wanted to. We were trying to save money. We couldn't afford it. And, and so what were we to do? Well, let's just build furniture. How about that? That's a great idea, but none of us knew how to build furniture. Courtney didn't know. I didn't know. And so what is the next alternative, uh, what is the next step in that process is to go to Google and ask Google, how do you build furniture, right? Because that's what we did. We went to Google, and the first website that pop popped up was a website called AnnaWhite.com. Anybody Anna White? Anybody know? Yeah. So Anna White, here's the deal. You can go home and look at it, okay, if you want to build a piece of furniture. Go home. And, and, and you can go to AnnaWhite.com. You can find the piece of furniture that you want. You can click on it. It will take you step-by-step -step process on how to make that piece of furniture. It will give you the materials that you want. It will even tell you that, that you need to take, use a tape measure to build it. No, kidding. Like, like really, it tells you the type of tools that you would need to build it. it. It gives you the hardware that you would need to purchase. And it even gives you the cut list. How amazing is that? And so we were like, we'll try our hand at it. It can't be a that big a deal, right? And so um, we did. You may be thinking on the outside looking in, this is a great team building exercise for your marriage. It is not. <laughs> by, the, by the end of that project, um, we wanted some time apart from each other. If I had to put one more screw in that table, I was going to lose my mind. And Courtney was going to kill me, either one. Um, but something we, interesting we learned, right, about following instructions. If you don't follow the instructions exactly that they were, the way that they were written, you wouldn't get the results that you wanted. You know, um, I think guys are like this. Men. <laughs> we're not very good at following instructions, let's just say, what, um, directions. And, and you may have ordered a piece of furniture to come to your house, and it says on the box, little assembly required. And you open the box, and there it's in a million pieces. And you're trying to put together, let's say it's a table. And on top of that, the material are instructions. And you take a look at those instructions, guys, and you set them to the side. And your wife picks it up and says, honey, don't you need these? No, I got it. It's just a table. It has four legs, and it's flat. It's fine. And so you begin to put it together. And five hours later, you erect this table. And it looks pretty good. But then you notice in the box, there are like 10 to 15 screws left over. And you justify it. You're like, they must have given us extra, right? 
there's no way that this could go into the table. And so a month goes by, and you begin to notice that the table's a little wobbly. And then a month, two months after that, you walk in the house, and you look at the table the wrong way, and it falls apart. Like, I feel like we are the, that type of person. And even though we're not very, maybe sometimes very good at following instructions or in, in the details, let me just tell you this. Is it God? He doesn't lo- overlook the details. He's in the instructions. He gives specific instructions for the building of the tabernacle, and every detail was purposeful and pointed to a greater story. Every aspect of the tabernacle, even the furnishings within the tabernacle, were so detailed in the way God wanted it to be made. Today, we're going to focus on one in particular piece in the tabernacle, and that's the Ark of the Covenant. It was the very first piece to be made in the, in the tabernacle. I'll tell you that because it's significant. The reason why it was made first. Now, you may not know much about the Ark of the Covenant. In fact, your frame of reference for the Ark of the Covenant may be a movie that was shot in the 80s called Indiana Jones, The Raiders of the Lost Ark. Like, I love Indiana Jones. Any other Indiana Jones fans in the house? Like, I love it. An archaeologist that has a whip, that has a cool hat, that's really dangerous, right? You see a picture of this. I love that guy and his whole purpose was to save the world by saving artifacts. And in the Raiders of the Lost Ark, we have this scene, this stage that was set. It was in the 1930s, and the Nazis took a hold of the Ark. They captured the Ark of the Covenant. Indiana Jones was trying to get the Ark back. And we have this scene that was set. I don't know if you remember a specific scene, but they, the Nazis had the Ark of the Covenant in their hands, and they opened up the Ark to see what was inside of it. And, the, and a bright shining light was shown out of the, the Ark of the Covenant. And then there was ghostly apparitions that came out of the Ark. And those ghostly apparitions turned into demons and then struck everybody around them dead with lightning bolts. Well, let me just say that if that's your frame of reference, that's not accurate, okay? That's not really how it is um, with the, the Ark of the, the Covenant. The last recorded um, historical mention of the ark was in Second Chronicles in King, with King Josiah in the year of 1640 B.C. Here's what we understand. There's a lot of mysteries about the ark, but there's some things that we do understand about the ark. For example, the ark of the covenant is also known as the ark of testimony. The word testimony or covenant both refer to a conditional agreement made by God and his people, and the ark literally is a box or a chest. So the ark of testimony is is really the box of agreement. A box of agreement. The Hebrew word for testimony is eduith, meaning witness. The Ark of Testimony got its name from the fact that it would be the housing of God's testimony to his people. It was to preserve God's witness. Now, with that said, we're going to read Exodus chapter 25, 10 through 22, but let's read it in a different way. I want to show a video that was probably shot in the 1980s, so forgive me. Um, but it gives a great visual representation of the building of the ark. Would you follow along? And they shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, a cubit and a half its width, and a cubit and a half its height. And you shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and out you shall overlay it, and shall make on it a molding of gold all around. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them in its four corners. Two rings shall be on one side and two rings on the other side. And you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark that the ark may be carried by them. 
pole shall be in the rings of the ark, they shall not be taken from it, and you shall put into the ark the testimony which I will give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its width. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work you shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end, and the other cherub at the other end, and you shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it one piece with the mercy seat. And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and they shall face one another. The faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you. And there I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim which are on the ark of the testimony, about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. Okay, that was really my voice, and I made it in iMovie, so... Um... I'm just kidding. Um, there's one thing that we need to know about the, the Ark of the Covenant. The God, God's design is always intentional and purposeful. God's design is always intentional and purposeful. And for some reason, God laid this on my heart today to say, whether you're a teenager in the room, maybe it's for you, or maybe it's for a young adult, or maybe it's for somebody who's struggling with self-doubt or self-image, that, that God created you and you were created on purpose for a purpose. That you're created on purpose for a purpose. Even if you were a bonus baby, meaning that you were unexpected, you weren't a, a, a su surprise to him. He knew you before you were created, and you were created fearfully and wonderfully. You're not a mistake because you were created on purpose for a purpose. He knew you and knit you together in your mother's womb. You were created on purpose and for a purpose. I don't know why I needed to say that, but I felt like I needed to say that this morning. Now back to the ark. Every aspect of the ark pointed to the nature, very nature of God. If you're taking notes, you want to write this down. The wood represented the humanity of God in Jesus Christ. The gold represented the deity of God in the Holy Spirit and Father God. And the wood, the, the, the poles represented how God wanted to move with his people. It, it represented the movement of God. Even the very location of the ark, the, the tabernacle, and, and the things in the tabernacle represented something about the nature of God. See, the ark was, rep was um, located in the Holy of Holies. It was a room within the tabernacle that no that humanity could not dwell. It was the Holy of Holies. And the very room describes a crit critical nature of God, that he is holy and he hates sin. But, but the ark itself was also a reminder of the holiness of God. And how the ark was, was created and, and the rules behind how you were to handle the ark represents the holiness of God. Number one, the first rule is this. They were to transport, transport the ark by the poles. Number two, no one but the Levites, the tribe from the tribe of Levi, the priestly tribe, were allowed to carry the ark. And number three is if you touch the ark, you would die. It's exciting. First Chronicles chapter 13, verses 9 through 12, we see a story about the, the ark being transported. And they transported it first the wrong way. What we see in this passage of Scripture is they decided, I don't know, the ark was too heavy or something. So they put the ark on top of a cart, and the cart was being pulled by oxen. Okay, that was the first mistake. They, they broke two rules there. And, and then as the ark went along, what they noticed, the guy named Huza, he noticed that the ark was being, was tilting a little bit. So he ran over and what did he do? He put his hands on the ark to balance it. He was being what, he was doing what 
you would think he needed to do, but what was one of the rules? Don't touch the ark. And so immediately he touched the ark and he died. God is serious about his holiness. God is serious about his holiness. Holiness is not an add-on to God's character. It's who he is. It's not an accessory that he wears. It's a part of his makeup. It's his DNA. That's why we go to the New Testament in 1 Peter, and he says, Be holy, for I am holy. See, the interesting thing about the ark, too, is, is the fact that they started with the ark, building the ark, and they went out from there. So if you look on, uh, from an aerial view, you see the ark, you see the holy of holies, you see the ark that was made, and then they built out from there. Why in the world? Because he began with his place of presence. Why? Because communication with God starts, starts with God and ends with people. Second thing we see is that God always approaches us before we can approach him. We see it even in the very beginning. God created the garden. He, he, he created what was his dwelling place, and he allowed people to be in his presence. And what we see in the ark, God came to the people and dwelt among them in a location, in a form of a box, the ark. And we fast forward. God came to his people and dwelt among them in the form of a man, Jesus. And if you're now, if you're a Christ follower in the room, God came and made his dwelling place in you, people, his church, in the form of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we cannot start our faith with God in what we do, who we know, or our family tree. It starts with him and him alone. So have you ever thought about what was in the ark? What's so significant about what was in the ark? He built this ark. He built it beautifully. But, but a box is built to put something in it. So what did he put in the ark? The first thing we see, or there's three, three items. The first is the golden jar of manna. And then there's Aaron's rod. And then the Ten Commandments. I think we have a picture of it right here. Each revealed something about who God is. That he is provider with the manna. That he has authority with the rod. And he establishes what is right with the Ten Commandments. Now, that's great. And that, that signifies what what. Um, the greatness of God and, and what it represents with God, but it also does something else pretty important. It represents who we are. If we take a look at the pot of manna, in Exodus sixteen thirty-two, it says this, this is what the Lord had commanded, take an omar of manna and keep it for generations to come so that they see the bread I've, I, get, I gave you to eat in the desert when I brought you out of Egypt. Here's the thing. Even though God had provided bread-like food for Israelites throughout their time wandering in the desert. Some, one thing that we see from the Israelites is a constant grumbling and a constant complaining. God was faithful, and he continued to provide food for them daily and faithfully, and they weren't a bit thankful. They complained and wanted something else. And here's what the pot of manna does for us. It's an uncomfortable reminder that despite what God has provided, they had rejected God's provision. They were more thankful probably for his stuff than the creator of that stuff. The, the rod, Aaron's staff, that it budded. Um, historically, this is what it means. The people, out of jealousy, rebelled against the house of Aaron, rebelled against Aaron, their high priest. They wanted a person from their tribe to be represented in going to the Holy of Holies. But God did something to resolve the dispute. God commanded the people take 12 sticks— so representing the 12 different tribes. And they were to write the name of their tribe leader on those 12 
um, tribe sticks. And then they were to lay them before the ark. And the next morning, they were to go to see what happens. And the next morning, this is what happened. Aaron's rod from the house of Levi had, blo- had budded and blossomed with almonds. God confirmed his choice that Aaron's household would be the priestly line. Number 17, 10 says this, And the Lord said to Moses, Put back the staff of Aaron before the testimony, before the Ark of the Covenant, to keep it as a sign for the rebels, that you may make an end to their grumbling against me, lest they die. The staff was a reminder that on, on more than one occasion they rejected God's authority. And then we get to the Ten Commandments. As you know, the Israelites were God's chosen people, God's special people. And he asked them to do one thing, obey the Ten Commandments. Obey these commands that I give to you. This was a conditional agreement. We ex- Exodus 19, we see this written. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. That sounds awesome. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And the, once they heard that, Israelites were like, yes, we will follow. We will do our part. We will be obedient to you. And what happened? They failed miserably. It was impossible for them to keep the Ten Commandments. And over and over again, they violated God's law. What did the Ten Commandments do? It was a reminder for the Israelites that they they had rejected God's standard of living. Now, think about that for a second. Each item in the ark represented how great God is. But it also was a reminder of man's sin. It was a reminder of man's sin. It was a reminder, get this, it was a reminder of how we, myself included, how we rejected God's provision, how we, re, we have rejected God's authority, and we have rejected God's standard of living. It pointed to a helpless sinner. Now, here's the thing. We live in a culture, we live in a society who likes to think that we are basically good. We define right and wrong by the things around us. That's called cultural holiness. I don't know if you know the difference between cultural holiness and godly holiness, but cultural holiness takes a look at the things that we see and and gives credit for the situations that we're in and say our standard for holiness is going to be based on those things around them. You see, this, this idea allows me to define what holiness should be for my life. And godly holiness is saying God sets that standard in God alone. You see, what the contents in the ark does for us, it says a different story. It tells a story that we are basically not good and we are unholy and we have severed a relationship with God. But where does God's provision come in for us? Where does it come in? All right, so you got the box, you got the contents within the box, but guess what? What was on top of the box? It was the mercy seat. It was the atonement cover. It was the atonement lid. You see that word atone means to cover over, hence the name atonement cover. And here's what happened. When God looked down, he didn't see the reminders of sin because there was a necessary object that kept him from seeing the reminders of sin. So what went on the atonement cover? Every year, the high priest would enter the Holy Holies on the on a day of atonement, Yom Kippur. The priest, um, I want you to get a picture of this. The priest priest didn't waltz up in there. He had to spend months in preparation to prepare himself to walk into the Holy of Holies. And he had something 
um, that, he had, that he had to take to put on the atonement cover. And the first thing that he did was he sprinkled the blood of bull on top of the atonement cover to cover the sins of his household. And then he took the blood of a goat and spread it on top of the atonement cover to cover the sins of Israel. From, and this is where we get from creation. God spoke clearly about the fact that sin leads to death. Romans 3.23 says, For all of sin and fall short of God's glorious standard. And so what we get from that is, therefore, sin will always lead to shedding of blood. Sin is costly. Hebrews 9.22 says, The law required that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. God promised this. He promised that when he saw the blood, that it would cover over man. That God didn't see sin anymore, but but he sees the provision. That God's wrath appeased, was appeased because of the blood. Now, the Israelites understood that, that when, when sin, their sins were covered by the blood, but God temporarily overlooked their sins for a little while. That's why they had to come back every year, every year, because of this. The fact of sacrificing animal blood did not, did not, did not fully and fi- finally satisfy sins. That's why they had to come back over and over again. But the idea of sacrificing and bloodshed pointed to a greater sacrifice that was needed. The blood of Christ is our permanent atonement cover. It's our permanent atonement cover. When God looks at us, he didn't see our sin, but his provision. He sees his son. Jesus laid down his life as an innocent sacrifice so that when God looks at us, he doesn't see people that are messed up. He didn't see our shortcomings. He doesn't see our failures. He sees perfection. And the best way to sum this up is found in the New Testament, Romans 5, 8 through 9. What an incredible passage of Scripture this is. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this way. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood. How much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? You say, the word justified means that you and I stand before God acceptable, spotless, pure, without sin. God looked at us and said, there is no sin in that man. There is no sin in that woman. He looks at us and he says that you are just in my sight. And all the blasphemy we've done by choosing stuff over God, all the blasphemy that we've done by living to say it's my way and not your way, and all the blatant sin by saying creation is better than God, God removed it and he sees us as just. Since we have now been justified by his blood. God, this is great news. Nothing, there's nothing about your effort in this text. There, there's nothing about your might. There's nothing about your religious stamina. There's nothing about cleaning yourself up. There's nothing about how much you attend church. There's nothing about what you do in this test because you have been justified by an act of God and God alone. We've been justified by his blood. Here's the bottom line. We've been made in pure standing, blameless in front of God, not because of our own religiosity, not because some sort of moral pursuit that we have, but Christ died. That's why. Christ died, and in his death, he absorbed the wrath of God. 
and going back to the things in, in the ark. Whenever I began to understand the gospel fully, it changed, it changed my perspective. It changed how I was going to pursue God. Because I got to the point where whenever I understood the magnitude of my sin, only then did I understand the greatness of the grace. We often, you know, me included, have said this before. Salvation is free. Salvation is free. No, it's not. It's not free. It costs something. It costs God everything. It costs Him, His one and only Son, for blood to be shed, for blood to be spilt out on the atonement cover. And when God looks at us, He doesn't see failures. He doesn't see shortcomings. What He sees is the blood of Jesus. He sees perfection. And in the blood of Jesus, there, we are fully and finally satisfied. His sins are fully and finally satisfied. It took a divine sacrifice. It took that to cover our sins for eternity. Let me pray for us. Father, we are incredibly thankful for you today. God, I don't even know what a response to this is. God, you led me to this point. And, and God, there's somebody in this room that needed to hear this message. And God, we acknowledge that, that we have shortcomings. We acknowledge that we have failures. We acknowledge that, that there's um, something messed up. But God, thank you for your provision for us. Thank you for the fact that my sin no longer holds me captive whenever we are in you. But you look at us with perfection because of the blood of Jesus, because of your sacrifice. And, and God, that's such a challenge for us. God, help us to be challenged by it. Maybe there's somebody in the room that just heard that for the first time, or, or maybe you, you're beginning to connect the dots for the first time. God, I pray that they respond to a calling that you have on their life to say yes to you. And God, for us in the room that maybe have been Christ followers for, for a long time, God, I pray that this kind of shakes us to the core of being reminded that, that it costs something for you. It costs something for my sin. And the reason why I can stand boldly and proudly before you is because of Jesus. So I pray that that shakes us to the very core. It helps us prioritize our family, family values and what we choose to pursue. God, I never want to be in a place where we just do church. I pray that when we hear the gospel, that every day we wake up, we are forever changed by it. That the way that we interact with others, we are changed by that interaction. We understand the magnitude of our sin. Therefore, we understand the urgency of sharing the gospel. God, my prayer is that we would be a people that don't push aside 
your values that don't push, push aside your provision or your authority. But God, help us to lean into it and help us to be reminded every day that we are covered by the blood of Jesus. In your name we pray.